0: How will AI shape society and how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, in any given year, one in five people in Canada will personally experience a mental health problem or illness. And by age 40, about 50% of the population will have or have had a mental illness. How might advances in precision health change how we address mental health problems? Dr. Cloud Cao is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Alberta. He is the Canada Research Chair in Computational Psychiatry and a member of the Women and Children's Health Research Institute. Dr. Sal's research includes developing tools to enable personalized diagnosis and treatment for mental disorders, brain development, and aging, as well as neuromodulation and neurofeedback. Dr. Sal, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Katrina. Thank you for having
0: me. So nice to have you here. I'm starting out this podcast um, by asking all of our guests the same question. And I'm doing this because this podcast is part of the AI for Society Research Signature Area in partnership with Precision Health. So I'm asking everyone, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of healthcare?
1: Oh, that's a great question and very, cha- a very challenging one. To be clear, we most, time, most of the time we use machine learning, which is actually a small part of the artificial intelligence. To solve health problems. And specifically for me, I'm interested in mental health problems. So there are at least two aspects from machine learning that um, really attract me. One is it can handle really complex data. The other one is actually it can it can provide individualized predictions and general generalizable to new data. So those two aspects are very important for us to push the field, what we call the precision mental health.
0: Very interesting. Well, you did your undergrad in math uh, and then you did some graduate work in psychology and computational neuroscience. These all seem like disparate fields, but if you could paint a picture of how these things fit together and and how did that pathway lead you to where you are now?
1: Um, There are two core things that actually wave uh, all these things together. One is the brain, you know, whether psychology or neuroscience or psychiatry, they're all linked to the brain, right? So that's actually one core. I'm interested in the brain in general, but I also want to use my knowledge to to help people with brain problems, right? Mental disorders uh, actually have, most of them are directly relevant to the brain. And another core is the data, right? No matter how you look at the brain and how you look at mental disorders, we have uh, genetic data, we have uh, brain imaging data, we have uh, all kinds of... uh, Different kinds of data, right? We also have, uh, on the other side, we have the behavioral data, cognitive data, and the medical records. We want to have, uh, you know, a multi-perspective view uh, of these uh, mental health problems. Those are the two cores that uh, link things together. And uh, my background in math, psychology, and the neuroscience—they definitely help uh, with this regard about uh, solving mental health
0: problems very interesting. And, and is there something in particular about mental health that really intrigues you or about brains that really intrigue you, or how do, where did that interest arise from?
1: I was very interested in um, you know things like uh, the big problems, right? Uh, most scientists uh, you know don't even want to talk talk about in the in public, but uh, I was at least uh, I'm still interested in uh, things like consciousness and uh, all those kind of things, you know, like what make us uh, human, right? I was interested in uh, uh, one, spe- especially like what we call the visual awareness or visual perception, you know, like uh, the, the the vision through our eyes and then to our brain, how do we perceive the world uh, that way? That was my PhD uh, work to try to model uh, the visual system to some extent. So it's oversimplified models. You know, whenever we try to build computational models of the brain, most of the time we cannot capture the whole picture of the brain, right? So it's so complex. It's so adaptive. But that, that's actually the, the gateway for me to try to get into neuroscience and psychology and understand human perception. But after I did my PhD, I I, I feel that, okay, you know, I like theoretical work. I like experimental work. But I prefer that, uh, you know, whatever I know, I can actually do some clinical or translational work to help people more in a more direct way. So that was actually when I thought, oh, you know, maybe during my postdoc, I should do some something clinical. And that's when I actually entered into psychiatry. And then I start I started uh, to use uh, brain imaging and machine learning to try to make uh, individualized diagnosis and treatment outcome predictions for psychiatric disorder.
0: That's a great story. And I, I really like what you're saying about wanting to do something a little bit more applied on, on the clinical side. But let's um, let's stay with your research just a bit longer and, and take a bit of a deeper dive into the specific areas of research uh, that you're working in. So computational psychiatry, precision medicine, and mental health. Those aren't necessarily terms that uh we hear all that often. So perhaps you could maybe start out by just explaining a little bit about those fields.
1: Yeah, great question. Actually, that's usually my openings about uh, you know, introducing why I'm a Canada researcher in this is so-called uh uh, computational psychiatry these two words usually they don't come together but in psychiatry we deal with mental disorders but in recent years we have um, solid opportunities to have more and more data from all modalities it can be as i said from genetics can be from brain imaging it can from it can be from uh, cognitive uh, assessments behavioral assessments and medical records all those kinds of uh, data actually allow us to uh, investigate this uh, complicated data in psychiatry population and apply advanced statistical and machine learning tools to this field. So basically, it's because, first of all, we have more data in psychiatry. It allows us to actually investigate mental health problems from a different uh, from a different angle, right? So it's, it's no longer just about a single clinical trial about a single drug. You know, we can actually investigate a large population from all different kinds of measurement from uh, each individual. The next thing which allow us to do so is the advancement of the tools, right? The machine learning tools in these years. Over the past 20 to 30 years, uh, a lot of things were developed. And these two things, the tools and the data that actually make this uh, new field possible. That's actually what we call, when we combine the data and machine learning uh, with the psychiatry and mental health problems, that's where we have this computational psychiatry.
0: That's so interesting. and i I think you're you're absolutely right. I think there's a this juxtaposition between the terms uh, computer or computational and psychiatry. Uh, because I think for many of us, we think of psychiatry as being this very maybe call it qualitative experience where you're talking with a psychiatrist or you're having a one-on-one kind of conversation. So this idea of quantitative data is is interesting. Was there always quantitative data in psychiatry, and the, and you just didn't have the tools to manage it, or or was it more of a qualitative approach in the o- in the older days of psychiatry?
1: Uh, yeah, I in older days, right? So. Not, not just in psychiatry, it's in, in medicine in general, right? So, you know, it's, it's based on a lot of experiences uh, in the field. But uh, think about how the modern medicine actually come into the current shape. It's actually because we have more and more objective measurements. You know, the clinical trials can actually indicate whether the drug is better than the just the placebo or not. Although there are still limitations on that, right? But I think that's a big advancement compared to just the you know, subjective uh, feedbacks about certain things. Oh, I feel it's better. Oh, I feel it, it's not better. Um, that's actually way too vague, right? It's not reliable. It's not replicable. It's not science. When medicine becomes science, that's when we have objective measurement and we have all kinds of data. That's actually this uh, whole thing about uh, computational psychiatry as well. One thing I have to add, though, computational psychiatry actually include two components. One is actually more theoretical-driven, computational psychiatry, which means that, you know, it's actually rooted from um, computational neuroscience. Okay, we know the brain works this way, and we know in certain disorders, the brain mechanism is disturbed in that way. And now I'm building a theoretical model, a computational model, an abstract model. And I try to say, oh, you know, if I tweak this parameter, and I will actually lead to this uh, behavior or problem or um, to this treatment outcome. So that's one way uh, to do computational psychiatry. And another way would be more data-driven. It doesn't have to be like a a biologically inspired model, right? It can be even just based on medical records or behavioral data. But as long as we can use that data to help the patient. So if we say, oh, you know, you probably won't be responsive based on your record or based on your history or based on whatever measurements. You probably won't be responsive for this invasive treatment. You know, let's try another thing. Sometimes it, it may not have a, a super biological-based data. It can be behavioral data. It can be something else. And uh, But as long as it can help the patient or the clinician or the policymaker, we think it's still valuable. And that's actually where we call it data-driven, the data-driven approach. These two approaches are actually not totally separate. They can be like integrated together, but I'm actually usually taking the second approach, which is a, the more data-driven approach. Although I still work on the biological part, uh, I am I still use the biological data.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that and, and kind of setting that up for us. I know that you've talked a little bit about uh, these translational tools that you want to develop that are helping you to provide this uh, accurate, personalized uh, diagnosis and treatment uh, for mental disorders. Can you talk a bit more about what kind of tools specifically that we're talking about? What does that look like?
1: I just give you one example from a brain imaging perspective, which is a paper that I published. But it doesn't have to be biological data, right? It doesn't have to be genetic or brain imaging data. It can be from medical records or it can be other things. But to give you one specific example, we know you know, what we call the functional connectivity within the brain for schizophrenia, it, it changed. Then we can say, oh, you know, if we measure this, what we call the functional connectivity within the brain of uh, of a schizophrenia patient, and we're especially interested in the first episode drug-naive schizophrenia patients. For those patients, you don't have any medical effect uh, on the brain, and which relatively more clear signal, right, compared to... People who have the disease and also who use the, some drug for a long time, because then the, the drug effect and also the disease progression they actually kind of get together, and you it's very hard to isolate them. So we actually investigate this uh, first episode of drug naive schizophrenia patients, and uh, we actually measure the functional uh, connectivity of their brain. And then yes, we we observe something, right? So that's actually not surprising. Um, but what what is more interesting? is uh that's actually where we push the statistical model to the machine learning model. So yes, we find something that's actually overall group level statistical model. And that that is interesting. And but that's actually where most current studies stop. But what we are really interested in is actually can we develop a tool based on this functional connectivity and can we recognize who will respond to certain drug and who will not? based on the baseline, what we call the baseline measurement of the function connectivity, right? We're trying to predict the outcome in the future. Can we do that? And can we do that for each individual, right? What we're really interested in is not just to summarize the data we have. What we are actually interested in is once we have this model, and then if you give me a new patient, just walk in, and uh, we have um, this treatment on the table, and can we say, oh, you know, you probably will respond to this. Let's use this as the in the first try. Or, most likely you won't respond. Let's try something else. And that's actually something we we try to achieve. For this specific study, we try to say, oh, you know, we can develop a preliminary machine learning model to try to make that kind of uh, prediction. It's still a small sample study because brain imaging is expensive and also it's very challenge, challenging to collect a drug-naive, uh, first-episode drug-naive patients, right? So it's actually, it, uh, it, need, it needs a special protocol. Right, because the the patient has to be stable enough and uh, they have to be stabilized to some extent so basically you can see that's actually one specific example how these two might work so eventually if you, we have all kinds of data especially those ones might be easily collectible or accessible right um, or more affordable as well like uh you know if you can have some uh, behavioral cognitive test and very sensitive to certain conditions or treatment outcomes then we can actually, deploy that test and then build a machine learning model based on that and say, oh, you know, mm, you may have this disorder or you may respond to this uh, type of drug. That's actually the translational tools uh, we're talking about.
0: So many questions coming coming out of that. One being uh, this idea of kind of going from the generalizable down to uh, the specific and kind of uh, getting to that level where you're able to drive an intervention at a very personal level.
1: You know, the data is just as hard to acquire from clinical populations. We usually don't own any data. So we actually collaborate with people, our collaborators, they may actually collect genetic or cognitive data or collect, uh, you know, brain imaging data. And we try to push that, their study, uh, towards the direction, uh, of, uh, precision health, right? Basically we try to make individualized predictions for certain outcomes.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm curious about uh, this idea of going from uh, sort of a statistical generalizable assessment of the data to the level where you're saying to a person or an individual something about their particular case. And I'm imagining that might have to do with how you constructed the model and the use of data to do that. And I'm just wondering, at a, at a high level, what are the factors that you look at? Maybe what kind of model you're using? Is it a computer vision model? Is it something else? How specifically are you kind of getting to that level?
1: So first of all, it's not a computer, uh, computer vision uh, model, but uh, it can be similar to some extent sometime if you are investigating uh, brimaging uh data, right? So then it's, uh, it can be something quite similar, but not not the same as a computer vision model. The logic is the same, right? You, you try to uh, extract some features out of the brain and you try to make some uh, competition models. It can be a classifier. It can be a regression model, depending on the outcomes. Uh, those processes are the same. When the model is generalizable to new individual cases, then it can already make individual prediction. So uh, the problem now is... Um, a lot of studies. If you don't do the validation, then you don't know how your model will perform uh, on new new data scenario, right? So if you only like summarize your data and uh, try to build a uh, one model using all the data, just uh, yeah, your model can work perfectly, but it might not be generalizable to new cases.
0: Um. Now I know that uh, there there are cases where you may not have the right data. Perhaps there are underrepresented populations, women and children, uh, perhaps in in the medical context. Can you tell us a bit about how do you deal with cases where you don't necessarily have the data at hand that you need?
1: Ah, oh, that's a very challenging question because uh, when we talk about the data driven study, right? So if you don't have data at all, you can almost do nothing with that respect. But uh, with underrepresented population, though. Usually uh, what we try to do is, first of all, you know, the model can be dominated by the the majority. A lot of times we cannot assume a model that you develop based on the majority can work on each of the small uh, or minority populations. So we have to actually spend extra effort to test the model in that population and try to see in the meantime if there are some risk factors that are specific to those populations. That's usually the regular approach we do. But again, we're doing data-driven study, right? So if, if the data is, is not there or it's just a too small to draw any conclusion, then most likely we cannot say anything about it, right? So we cannot, again, we don't want to introduce bias or subjective guesses into this, right? We want the, the data to reveal themselves.
0: It seems like that then might impact what you're able to do or not able to do. I mean, would you say that's kind of a fair assessment in terms of if you just don't have the data, you can't actually um, maybe look at that population?
1: You know, it depends on what kind of data, right? So if you have to say, oh, you know, I I need a very specific population of their brain imaging data, then if no one has the brain imaging data, then you cannot do anything, right? But, you know, for some other data, for, for for the medical records, you may actually have a, a big population-level data. You know that is actually possible to give you some hint uh, to start with, right? So if you say, "Oh, I realize there's a major gap. You know, uh, I don't have any data," and but this is actually a very important outcome I want to investigate, then you can actually plan to collect some new data and collaborate with people. So basically, the logic is that we try to exhaust what we have in the existing data and try to guide us to generate new hypotheses and generate new translational tools, but to also realize the limitation of our current data collection. And then if we want to address some problems that not be able to be addressed with the existing data, we can actually try to think about a bigger picture uh, down the road.
0: You mentioned that you don't actually own any of this data. You're partnered with various agencies, and that's where uh, a lot of this data comes from. And I, I wanted to just ask a little bit about kind of the ethical uh, practices in using this data for your research. Are there certain uh, ethical practices, codes of conduct, professional codes, or even tools that you use um, as researchers uh, just in order to address some of the ethical implications of, of some fairly using some fairly sensitive medical data in the context of your work
1: We actually rarely uh, use very sensitive uh, medical records because th- those are actually highly um, very protective, right the people the data custodians, uh, they're actually very protective about those data. For most of the data we work with, for example for some of the aging general data they are actually uh, a shared you know, in the research community and you can apply for that data and they are all de-identified, you know, like we have zero interest in like trying to identify any uh, individual. We try to use the uh, de-identified data to actually uh, develop our model. So the dilemma is sometimes, yes, we try to, on the, on one hand, we try to say, oh, you know, we try to push, push it to the individual level. So we try to predict the individual a condition right so but uh for example we have two groups of people uh, okay this group has this condition for example schizophrenia this group has uh, has another condition or has it's relatively healthy and we try to make predictions on each of them but each of them will carry the same label right within the same group so there's no way that uh you know we actually have any information about the you know the patient information or anything so by individualized prediction we're actually talking about okay for each individual, we actually try to identify their group characteristics as a condition. For example, schizophrenia. And then, then if a new patient come in, right, we don't care about the the specific personal information. But based on certain profiles that we observed previously, based on this model, we can say, oh, you know, your brain may tell us, um, you know, you you are either having schizophrenia or you can. Respond to certain drug. That's actually the purpose. So we we don't we're not interested in, uh, about the personal data, but uh, we are fully aware of the those risks. So first of all, it's de-identified. It's actually involved a lot of uh, processes, you know, to make sure that uh, we cannot identify anyone. And also um, downstream, we have to have the ethics approval, you know, even to perform this kind of secondary data analysis. And also, you know, we have to explain a lot of questions from the ethical board from the university. And also we try to consult with clinicians, um, with uh, people with, uh, you know, EDI groups uh, from the university, uh, also policy makers, and also people with living or lived experiences. So we try to get a picture, you know, like, because we think, oh, you know, you were just developing a research tool, right? but other people may perceive it differently. So um you know we try to always try to be open about that during this uh, process of the research. So I think that's actually a very important component, you know, when we when we release the the model.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that and um you you mentioned um some of the people uh, that uh, you're consulting with. And I I just wanted to ask a bit more about your team, because one of the themes that we're exploring on the show is this idea of interdisciplinary teams. And I know that you yourself are an interdisciplinary researcher, having had the, the background both in the computational psychiatry and more of the formal uh, machine learning side. Um, but can you tell me a bit more about who else are you working with? What does your team look like? And how you've kind of built these collaborations across disciplines?
1: The university uh, and the department already have an uh, existing effort for computational psychiatry. Even before I joined, there was an uh, existing collaboration between uh, Dr. Ross Greiner and also several folks from the um, uh, Department of Psychiatry, namely uh, Dr. Andy Greenshaw, Dr. Serda Derson, Dr. Shimin Lee. So they already have this uh, um, cross-faculty uh, collaboration ongoing. And after I joined, I just I just joined them. And, uh, but I also, also try to uh, enhance the team. I also bring in people from Alberta Health, uh, the Ministry of Health. And we actually have a team together as well to work on the administrative health data, which is not medical records, but it is actually something relevant, right? So it's, uh, it's similar, but it's not that sensitive compared to the original medical records. We don't have original medical notes. We also have a uh, Uh, psychiatrists and new clinicians, uh, namely uh, Yan Bo Zhang and uh, Jake Hayward, and uh, and also we try to actually even bring more people into this team. Because it's not only about the data, you know, like, yes, we have the machine learning expertise, we have very strong uh, AI team in computing science, Uh, GRAS is actually very strong in um, uh, medical applications using machine learning. But we also need a policymaker from the government and, and also from AHS. We also need clinicians to tell us, you know, what is actually the most uh, significant clinical problem they really care, you know, like if we will try to push a translational tool, what can help them? They are our potential users and the, as well as the policy makers. Those are the things we try to build. And also one important part is if you have the machine learning tool, how can we push it to the real world to actually help in the clinical environment, not just uh, something that you publish as a paper, we were talking about like something in the real world. Can we actually use that, um, you know, to guide the, the decision-making part for the clinicians or for the policymakers? That takes a very long way to go. You know, we're not there yet. We're still in the research domain, but we we try to you know think about the real-world application scenarios. But for that, you need a larger team who have different expertise, uh, different backgrounds, and share with you their opinions and also different channels right for us to implement this in the real world so yeah that's uh, that's the team we're still expanding and we are actually also try to recruit young talents to join our team as well
0: That's great. I I love that you're taking such a um, a varied interdisciplinary approach and and thinking ahead to when you're going to be uh, kind of in market, so to speak, with clinicians. Um, Any sense of when? uh, I know that research takes a long time. Uh, Is there any sense of when that might happen?
1: (laughs) There's no like one size fits all uh, answer for that. For some things, it may um, we may relatively more mature compared to other uh, areas. It's just like all the software, right? So you, you kind of need to silently, without actually interfering the current decision-making process, you kind of need to silently test your model for a while after that, right? After all the clinical verification, after all the implementation. You test it and then you say, oh, you know, like it's closing up or even even better than the clinician's, clinician's decision-making. And then we can actually try to s- deploy it to some extent in the closed form and then in the in a, in a more open session. So that actually takes a very long way uh, to go. We're still very, very early in that process.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting as you're talking about that, I'm sort of envisioning uh, you've built a crystal ball, you're testing what things look like in the crystal ball, but then you're going back and using what actually happened to see how accurate the crystal ball was in its own prediction. So I I find that process really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, and also it's not guaranteed to work, mm-hmm. right? So it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's research, it's, we're, we're actually pushing the front here. Um, yeah. But that's actually how we envision it uh, for all the mental disorders and try to push uh, in, push everything into this fashion.
0: Wow. And you mentioned uh, opioids uh, just a minute ago, and I, I'm going to segue now into talking about some other work that you're doing uh, in this area and, and looking at whether or not cannabis could be a gateway drug to opioid abuse. Can you tell us a little bit more about that particular research study?
1: We're not trying to address whether cannabis is a gateway drug to something else. So we are trying to see whether prescription cannabis-based medicine is actually associated with uh, any opioid outcomes. We try to not introduce any bias about uh, cannabis or opioid in general, right? So we again we let like data to reveal themselves. We don't know whether it's beneficial or it's it's, it's just a, you know it's leading to more risks to certain uh, opioid outcomes. That's actually what we try to investigate it's a tricky problem to even collect the data around cannabis. So for us, we don't have the data. What we only have is actually the prescription cannabis-based medicine. And we try to see whether those guys who use that uh, prescription cannabis-based medicine, they have a higher or lower risk of uh, certain opioid outcomes, like uh, opioid use disorder, or opioid poisoning, like opioid overdose. So that is what we try to investigate. So based on the the administrative health data so we're not collecting new data and uh, all the data are de-identified.
0: Was there something that drove that particular question or, or how did that research study arise?
1: Overall you you know when you say that oh whether cannabis is a gateway drug right that's, there's a huge debate about that and uh, that's actually something that we want to investigate but through our scope of administrative health data and also pres- prescription cannabis and medicine so we are curious about that. Uh, yeah, that's our that's our way to to address this uh, question, right? So, again, we cannot say that the result will be representative to you know all the cannabis use. So that that is almost not possible at the current uh, world because it's uh, it's being used uh, quite widely.
0: Very interesting. And do you see some intersections between that particular piece of work and and some of the other work that we've been talking about with respect to uh, the tools that you're building to look at mental health problems in general? Do those things intersect at all or are these completely separate uh, research projects?
1: They are separate research projects, but uh, the tools that we're developing, they have some overlap. So basically, the logic is the same. We have certain outcomes and we try to push it to the individual level. But in the meantime, we are also interesting to know once you integrate this complex data, can we identify the quantitative patterns within this data to show the patterns association with the outcomes? For example, opioid outcomes. So that's actually something we are trying to develop as well, because uh, it's not only about individual prediction, but it's also about what we call the, the risk factor identification or quantification or profiling, right? To help also the the policymakers to realize oh you know what's the problem here you know did we miss anything for this population or for this outcome that's actually also where you when you ask oh you know what about the the underrepresented uh, groups well, we can see oh you know maybe certain groups they are more uh, sensitive to this association between this risk factor and the opioid outcome or cannabis outcome and then what can we do to help from the policymaking perspective this come back to the to the ASCO issues again, right? We have to be really, really careful about things that we don't want to stigmatize any population. So, you know, we want to be clear that, oh, it's not because a certain characteristic of, of this population that, uh, you know, it's just simply because you are, uh, you know, you are certain labeled in this way that you are actually uh, in the system and you actually have certain uh, higher risk. Usually that's, it's not as simple as that. It's usually associated with uh, other demographics information, other socioeconomic status, and all the histories of the population and everything. That's why it's very challenging to, to perform this type of uh, studies to get an overall picture.
0: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really, really good point. I know it can be challenging sometimes to communicate these more complicated messages, especially when there's a lot of nuance. How do you go about that in the context of, of your work or or what conversations have you had maybe with policymakers about that to make sure it, it, um, things aren't being stigmatized, as you're saying?
1: Yeah, that's actually really challenging, actually. Um, in research, uh, you know, we have actually certain types of training and, uh, you know, even when you apply for, uh, for grants, so they actually specifically ask you, you know, uh, about, for example, sex and gender or all, all those kind of st- stuff because people may have unconscious uh bias towards certain uh certain things so we have to be aware fully aware of that and also in the meantime we have to communicate you know like we know that there will be potentially problem Um uh, i call it the theory, theory of mind so basically it's just in psychology term it's just a, my perception of something is different from your perception right if i'm saying this thing i i'm saying i'm just expressing some fact but uh the perception from you might be very different than my expectation so that's why you know when we um you know formulate this uh, research work it's very important to talk to people with more ex- experience in certain field right so we we're familiar with the yeah we want to reveal what data show us but uh once you put put it into the real world scenario then we need to ask the clinicians they have more experience in the you know the first sense Um, you know, experience with the patient and also, you know, the policymakers and they see more, right? Because they they overview the data and they know like what might be the problem. We always uh, try to consult with people with a broader or different perspective. So I think that that is very important.
0: Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I feel like we've covered so much ground. I just want to end by asking you uh, what's next for you, and uh, is there anything else that you want to share that's kind of on the horizon in terms of your research?
1: Yeah, it's actually uh, a, a challenging field. Uh, you know, like uh, people, as you said, people probably don't even know, a lot of them, uh, what exactly is computational psychiatry. It's also you know make it challenging to demonstrate work, right? So uh, I, I get this a lot. Oh, you know, yes, we, we have some statistical model and why we have to use machine learning and what can you offer us uh you know in addition to this model we have. All those kind of things. Uh you know, we need to you know show people what we can do and and also to get support for this kind of research is also challenging because it's not a typical clinical research. But it's also not a pure computer uh, research, right? So it's actually we try to borrow the computer tools to solve problems in the medical field, and uh, that is actually very ch- uh, challenging. But in time, ta- in the meantime, I see a lot of opportunities. Uh, I think that's uh, in medicine in general. I think part of the future would be to exhaust the existing data, try to get all the information outside of the existing data to, to make the best decision we can make, and the psychiatry relatively is a bit lagging behind compared to you know cancer research compared to uh, radiology where you actually can use ai algorithm to make a lot of uh, to facilitate a lot of a uh, decision making uh, process already you know we just know so little about the brain and the mental disorders in general so we have to stay humble uh, in that respect but we also have to be uh, you know smart about uh, using the existing data to try to push the boundary right so i think every field in medicine you know, when we talk about precision health, um, that's actually part of the future for, for health research and for health, uh, even for health practice. In in my opinion, uh, so, because we have to utilize the data we have to make better decisions. That's how we can reach the personalized medicine. So once we have uh, the better picture of each individual, and then we can actually uh, make better suggestions of the treatment outcomes for the disease, and even for prevention and for promoting better health.
0: Fantastic. Well, Dr. Sao, I just want to say thank you so much for making time to be here today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.